Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. Happy to have you join me. Uh, me and my uh, my buddy Paul Burmeister from NBC Sports, we're going to start it off uh, with a discussion of one of the busiest weeks in one of the busiest off-seasons that I remember in all the years I've covered the NFL. So we'll get to a few issues there. Then I'm going to join by my be joined by my guest this week, uh, Scott Pioli, now working for CBS Sports but uh, the former general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs and the longtime front office executive with the New England Patriots, big personnel guy with Bill Belichick. Then uh, we're going to talk to Richard Deitch of The Athletic. This is a huge week uh, for business in the NFL and for TV uh, rights and what the future of how and, and the future of how you're going to watch the NFL on TV and for the first time a package. Uh, has been sold to a company that's going to stream the games. So there's a lot going on in the NFL right now. We're going to get to all that. But Paul Burmeister, how's everything with you? It's starting to look like spring, and I'm a happy guy. We are extremely happy at our house. Spring is on the way, and uh, the kids can start their activities. So life looks pretty good the next few weeks. I was reading through your article. Uh, on Monday morning and listen to you just now. Do, do you still get people sometimes to come up to you and say, guys, the off season, what do you do in the middle of March? It happens all the time. You know, it, it, I mean, it used to happen a lot of times when, when I'd be traveling. I remember one year I was on my way to go cover the, uh, um, the draft in Kansas city. This was about 10 years ago. And I was at the airport in, maybe it was Newark, maybe it was LaGuardia. And I was getting ready to board the plane. And some guy comes up to me and he goes, hey, what are you doing? And I said, I'm on my way to Kansas City. And he goes, uh, oh, you you taking some time off? You're going away? I said, dude, the draft is this weekend. You know, covering the draft. And he goes, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I you know, for some reason, I thought, hey, it's the off season. You're probably uh, taking some time off and going to some baseball games or something. I said, well, someday in my life, I will be going to a lot more baseball games in the off season than I am right now. But, but anyway, hey, it's you know the thing is, Paul. You know, I joke about it, but I'd much rather have this level of interest 
and this level of activity in the off season, because you wake up in the morning and it's almost like during the season, there's so many things you can do. So uh, no, it's going to be, uh, this is going to be a particularly active off season because of the cap, uh, because of what just happened with TV. The draft is going to be weird this year. So uh, there's going to be a lot of things to write about, talk about, and uh, TV about in the next few months. Yeah, in addition to all the roster building news that goes on right now, and we have both benefited the last 10, 20 years, but the interest level in the free agency yeah. and the draft evaluation, all that. You also always have the unexpected stories that come up. And right now we're all dealing with a really unfortunate one in Houston with Deshaun Watson. Obviously the most significant part of that story, the growing number of lawsuits, and we'll see where that goes and what it means for him on and off the field. There's also a football side of that story, Peter, that I, I think we should acknowledge and get into, and that's outside of Houston. These teams in the quarterback game for upgrading their own team at quarterback that were potentially thinking about making a move to try to get to Sean. Now that that's plausibly off the table and they have to have a plan B, how do you think teams that did have that on their mind are proceeding accordingly at the quarterback spot? I think one of the difficult things in trying to predict the future with Deshaun Watson is that all we have to this point are is one side of a story. And it appears to be it's one sordid side to a story. But I think until we actually know more about this, and you know, when I mean more about this, I mean uh, getting Deshaun Watson to speak about it, getting uh, some real information with more of an, in, an of an investigative view into what happened with all these women, because clearly it appears the the image that has been portrayed of Deshaun Watson is of a serial sexual harasser or sexual assaulter, and so Deshaun Watson is going to have quite a bit of work to do. Even if none of these things pan out, he's going to have quite a bit of work to do to get his, his reputation uh, back untarnished. So that's part of this right now. And the other part, Paul, I think is that, you know, look, there were several teams and, you know, we can line up the usual suspects. Um, you know, I think Carolina was going to be very interested Miami, perhaps, the Jets, perhaps, San Francisco, other teams. There were going to be a lot of teams interested in Deshaun Watson. But we're almost right now, we are five weeks away from the draft. And let's just say for the sake of argument that the Carolina Panthers select Mac Jones in the first round of the draft and start to build a future with Mac Jones at quarterback. Well, all of a sudden, you know, the Carolina Panthers are probably not going to be interested in Watson anymore. Let's say the Jets take Zach Wilson. They're not going to be interested anymore. Let's say that uh, Tua Tonga-Valoa gets a solid chance in year two with the Dolphins. I still think that's going to be a possibility. Um, I mean, a possibility that Miami could have some renewed interest in Watson if things get cleared up. But all of these things are happening, Paul, and I think it's going to be very difficult in the next five weeks, certainly, for any team to be able to get to some comfort level 
where they would trade for Deshaun Watson? I think about Carolina and also I tie them to the New York Jets with, with this whole thing, Peter, because if I understand it correctly, Carolina was willing to put, maybe they did put an aggressive offer on the table to Houston to hopefully land Sean Watson a while back before all these stories, before all these lawsuits came out. Now, if that's not going to happen, would they be willing to make an aggressive push to get up to two with the Jets? Because maybe they like Matt Jones a lot, but maybe they love Zach Wilson more than everybody else. And they have a huge drop off between Wilson, Lance, Jones, all those guys. And they want Zach Wilson at two. Would they be willing to put those resources up to try and get up to two now that it seems like Deshaun Watson wouldn't be their target? I think the I think that there is a, there's going to be a very interesting thing that will happen. You know, I look. I think Joe Douglas, the general manager of the Jets, is a smart guy who holds his cards very close to the vest. I don't believe Joe Douglas is the kind of guy who's going to call up his buddies in the league and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking with my with the number two pick in the draft. I'm thinking of trying to trade down to number eight to get an extra one and an extra two uh, and then pick at number eight. So, so I think my overriding point here is that I don't know that – the rumors and the rumors will definitely start that, Hey, maybe the jets can trade down. I don't know that, that we're going to, what's the right word to say? I don't know that, that any of that is going to make sense because I don't think Joe Douglas is going to let anybody know what he's going to do. And in fact, it won't surprise me. I tell you a story, the year that Denver picked, Jay Cutler at quarterback. Mike Shanahan did not tell anyone in the draft room, any scouts, any personnel people, anybody, until very shortly, maybe an hour before the draft. I, I, I forget when it was. But he did not tell a soul what he was going to do. And so that essentially, in my opinion, is – probably what Joe Douglas is going to do. I think there's going to be even scouts on his own staff, who knows, maybe coaches on the coaching staff, who aren't going to know what he's going to do until he does it. Draft is kind of a little bit on the back burner, coming more and more to the front. It's still kind of free agency headline time. And I always enjoy at the end of your Football Morning America articles when you kind of take a couple of the questions from the fans and respond to that and interact with them. One of the questions that you dealt with this week, a fan asked you, how does a team claim, how can a team claim that it's winning in free agency or that it won the first week splash news of free agency? And a lot of teams come to mind, but number one, Peter, what comes to mind is, I guess it all depends or depends on how you define a win in the middle of March. You know, you can't, it's impossible to know. We all think that the Patriots did a great job in free agency because, as I wrote in my column, they bought bought eight to ten starters in free agency. Uh, now, if you add a trade because Trent Brown, who comes from the uh, the, the Raiders, um, you know he came in 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 a, in a sort of free agency, but technically it's a trade. Uh, you know, it is a trade. But what I'm the point I think I'm making is that we can look at 
any team that goes out and does a lot in free agency in March and think, oh, my God, they're a lot better. And look, the reason we think the Patriots are going to be better is that they now have two excellent tight ends. Um, obviously, in Hunter Henry and John M. Smith, uh, they're much improved at wide receiver uh, with Nelson Aguilar, who had a sort of breakout year last year with the Raiders, and Kendrick Bourne, who could end up in the slot uh, for the Patriots. So they've got four weapons that are better. And again, I'm taking Julian Edelman out of the equation because he turns 35 this year. You can't really count on him. So if he wants to play, I assume he'll play, but it's just hard to say a receiver who's taken as much punishment as he has that you can count on. So essentially you've got four new good to very good weapons um, you know, that you just didn't have last year. So they are better, but let's take the Patriots out of the equation for a minute. And I'll tell you that like the New York giants, um, they went out and basically bought two, what they consider to be two premier starting players. Um, they bought obviously a wide receiver in Kenny Galladay, $18 million a year. And they bought a cornerback from Tennessee who'd been released by Tennessee, Adore Jackson, um, who is probably going to line up uh, as one of the corners with the Giants this year. So there's no question. They are better right now than they were the day the season ended. But I don't think you can answer those questions in a vacuum. And here's why. The Giants right now basically have, uh, you know, have some really high-priced players under contract with their team. And uh, the problem is one of them isn't the franchise running back who's going to make about $20 million a year whenever they re-sign him, um, you know, and Saquon Barkley. And the other one is not, one of them is not the quarterback in Daniel Jones. Now, I'm not positive they're going to sign Daniel Jones long-term, but that is what the Giants do. The Giants draft a quarterback, stick with him unless he's a total bust, and develop him. And I would assume that's what they're going to do with Daniel Jones. So with all these big contracts they've signed, you can say, hey, they're better. But at some point, you're going to have to spend huge on, uh, you know, on your quarterback and running back. And if you've already devoted um, in, you know, in the space of, you know, 13 to 20 million a year for 22 million, if you count Leonard Williams, for four players right now. I mean, look, it's you can do anything you want in free agency, Paul, but essentially at some point you got to pay the piper. That's what would worry me about, say, let's say a team like the Giants. Let's talk about the Colts, a team that's not spending at all. And they kind of have the formula, Peter, to, to be a team that's in the headlines and spend a lot because they have the cap room. They have the extra cash. They won 11 games last year, and they're they're close. They had a taste of the playoffs, and that they could easily say, boy, if we had one or two more players, we're a 12 or 13 win team. We're playing late in January instead of just mid-January. Yet they're not proceeding with caution. They're, they're not proceeding at all. How do you read yeah. what they're doing? There's this cliche in the NFL, it's called cash to cap. The Colts are a cash to cap team, which means that they're, they're not going to ever do what the Patriots did. 
which the Patriots are well under the cap. And as Robert Kraft, the owner, told me last weekend, uh, I've never had to come up with so much cash in my life. Because when you sign a bunch of players in free agency, um, what you have to do is you've got to give out money right away in signing bonuses. So, you know, that is not the way the Colts operate. The Colts operate on a pay-as-you-go basis. And so um, right now, if you look at how the Indianapolis Colts operated, entering the uh, uh, offseason with about $35 million to spend, they basically said, we're going to keep that money in our pocket because, okay, we've already got Carson Wentz and DeForest Buckner. You know, those guys are, you know, over time, over the next few years, that's around $40 million a year between them uh, that they're going to require you to pay, $40 to, to $43 million. And then there's three other players that they have right now. One is Quentin Nelson, uh, their, their great guard. Another is their underrated uh, right tackle, Braden Smith, and then also Darius Leonard, their franchise linebacker. They want to get all those guys signed long-term in the next year. Altogether, that's going to cost them in the range of 45 to 48 million a year on average to get all three of those guys signed, maybe a little bit more. So if you wondered why the Colts have been doing nothing, they have been doing nothing because they want to do a lot of things uh, within the next year to get all of their guys signed. I think that GM Chris Ballard, with how well he's done that, deserves the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you could say the same about the other 11-win team in the AFC South, Tennessee, with John Robinson. But if you start to piece together everything that's happened there the last couple of months, I mean, they lose their offensive coordinator to become a head coach. That happens. But then in the last couple of weeks, two of their top three pass catchers out the door, multiple starters in the secondary, a lot of money to a pass rusher who's coming off a major injury. While all at once you can say, I believe in John Robinson because he's done very well there. I think it's also fair to raise your hand and say, what the heck is going on in Tennessee? Well, you know, John Robinson is on a bad streak right now. And I agree with you, Paul. I think he's very good. I'm bullish on John Robinson. But it just goes to show you that all good personnel people um, can run into a cold streak. And right now, last year, John Robinson spent $21 million last year on two pass rushers because they had a horrible uh, pass rush situation. Vic Beasley and Jadavian Clowney. Well, they combined for zero sacks last year. Beasley was released early. Clowney was hurt some, uh, and he just didn't have the impact uh, that uh, that John Robinson thought he was going to have. So, and not only that, but they their first-round pick, Isaiah Wilson, tackle from Georgia, uh, turned out to be an absolute bust. They had to release him. So, you know, really, uh, John Robinson absolutely unequivocally ne- needed to hit a home run this year. And, you know, he signed Bud Dupree for a lot of money. So, you know, he better be right on Bud Dupree is all I can say because the money that he used to sign Bud Dupree is money that he didn't use uh, you know, to sign a couple of pretty good players, Corey Davis, the wide receiver, and also Adore Jackson, the cornerback. So, 
you know, there's there's a lot of pressure on John Robinson right now to uh, to be right on Bud Dupree. Before we get to your interviews, I want to get to the new television contract deals. The news came out last week. We had those reports. Then the next couple of days, all the analysis about it. And now the next phase of this is what's still left on your mind about all these billions of dollars, about the next 10 years, about how we're going to consume all the games. So what resonates with you after the news and the analysis come out all these days later? So I'm, I'm talking to Richard Deitch quite a bit about the nuts and bolts of what is new. And that is Amazon getting involved and uh, in getting a package of 15 games, all of which uh, you're going to have to uh, get either a monthly or an annual membership to Amazon Prime if you don't already have one to be able to watch those games. So that's one part that I would say is interesting, but I'll stay away from that because I get into that with Richard Dyke. One of the things that I find really interesting about what happened is that, you know, right now ESPN's part of this deal now is so much better than it was last time. They're going to get better games, the chance to flex uh, in weeks 12 through uh, 18, regular season weeks 12 through 18. And one other element of this deal, I think, is really, really interesting. And, Paul, I have heard that this could start as early as this fall. So uh, I'm, I'm, this you may not have to wait until 2023 for this to happen. Because keep in mind, the NFL's TV contracts still run for the next couple of years. But right now, there is some speculation around people in the league who I know that an element that wasn't going to start until 2023 could start now. And that element is ESPN is going to get a Saturday doubleheader in week 18 that, you know, normally and and that when you say week 18, it means that there's going to be a 17 week regular season now, a 17 game regular season, excuse me. And so there will be an 18th week, 17 games for every team plus one bye. So there will be one more week of regular season football. And in that 18th week, ESPN is going to get the rights to televise a doubleheader, probably 4.30 p.m. Eastern and 8.15 p.m. Eastern um, on the last weekend of the regular season. And what makes that really interesting is that the NFL now is going to be able to tell teams on Sunday night of week 17, okay, you've got a short week this week. You're playing on Saturday uh, late in the day instead of Sunday afternoon. And keep in mind, uh, Paul, that that this there are going to be a lot of playoff implication games, most likely, on that final weekend of the season. So – you're not going to have many happy coaches if they're told, oh, by the way, you're, you, you've got to play on Saturday this week instead of Sunday, especially if you only find out about that, you know, on Sunday night of week 17. So that is going to be something that's going to be really, really interesting. And who knows, it could happen starting this year. I think another part of that is interesting is some of those years, uh, I can think of some recently where the game on NBC, that late game, that final one, 
Right. It's not like there were three or four games that's win and get in to pick from. That there might be right. one. So if you have a late afternoon kick Saturday, they're expecting huge eyeballs. A primetime Saturday, a primetime Sunday, there might not be three really significant games to go around. Well, that's a that's a really interesting part of this. And I think virtually every year there has been something that comes close to a win in your in scenario for a Sunday night game. So that is not going to change. The The great game is still going to go on Sunday night. But on Saturday afternoon, and this is this is how one person put it to me. You know, it's it's very possible that you are, you know, you could have a couple of uh of hey a bunch of things have to go right for them to make the playoffs. Okay. But obviously the first thing is they need to win. So what you could also do is you could have say the New York giants, they need to win and then they need some help on Sunday with all these other games. So the giants could win late Saturday afternoon and could sit around for the next, you know, uh, 23 hours or whatever and watch all the games on Sunday and all their fans would be watching thinking that, Hey, look, such and such and such really has to go right for us, you know, for us to make the playoffs. So there are still going to be some games of significance that they can put on Saturday afternoon, but probably not many really win in your in scenarios. I'm looking forward to your interviews here. It's not every March you get to combine billion-dollar TV and streaming deals with uh, off-season management of the roster. So um, who are we looking forward to here? Well, we're going to – first of all, we're going to start with Scott Pioli, the longtime NFL executive, now works for CBS. Got into a lot of uh, what – because obviously he has worked in three different organizations for Bill Belichick, Cleveland, the Jets, or worked with Bill Belichick. Cleveland, the Jets, and then the Patriots. Um, so a little bit of inside intel on Belichick and also what he's seen uh, clearly with these, uh, you know, with with what we've seen in free agency. And then obviously Richard Deitch will get into uh, this new TV contract. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. It's a world record again! Go for the United States! Unbelievable! And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never 
ever seen anything like this. How about that? In Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. So without further ado, let's uh, let's get into my conversation this week with Scott Pioli. So happy to be joined this week on the podcast by Scott Pioli, um, the uh, former general manager of the Chiefs, now the uh, very trusted voice of CBS Sports covering the National Football League, does so many things, um, has had a very interesting post-football career because it's still a current football career. You just do a lot of different things. Yeah. Scott, welcome. How are you? I'm doing really well, Peter. Thanks. Good. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Thank you. So uh, the first thing I want to say is I always notice when you're doing television that you have uh, old Sports Illustrated covers behind you, and they're not always the same. So I have to ask you, what is this shifting Sports Illustrated cover thing that you do? I try to keep things topical. So right now we're hitting free agency. So as we remember, and you, I think that might have been your article, Peter. In, uh, my, yeah, it's my cover from 1993. But Reggie White. So he was the first big NFL free agency when it first happened. So, again, Reggie White's relevant now in the middle of free agency. But over this shoulder, that's Kurt Flood, who was the original free agent, right? He was the yeah. one who filed the lawsuit against Major League Baseball. And so, so it's a little bit of – free agency. You know, I've always got Dick Butkus somewhere in the mix. I try to make sure he's there. He was my childhood hero, number 51. Billie Jean King, we've got National Women's History Month. And uh, Billie Jean's always up here, too, so I keep her in the bobblehead. So I try to keep him rotating for different reasons. And this way, there's like this subliminal message back there that people can see that I'm paying attention to whatever the topic is. And like you say, during the season, I'm constantly changing it based on maybe the game that I'm working or based on on something big that's happening around the league or, or in another sport. Cause I've got a big collection. You got it. But I, I'm going to ask you two things about what you just said. One is, so you grew up in Washingtonville, New York, about an hour North of New York city. Yeah. And you, uh, yet you love Dick Butkus. How did a kid from, uh, from upstate New York fall in love with a Chicago bear? Well, to be clear, I grew up a Giant fan, right? Giants, Mets, Rangers, that, that's all we're allowed to, to like in my house. Um, but, you know, growing up, remember, do you remember NFL films had this yeah. NFL with, you know, with that sound, this is the NFL. So every week you'd get to see NFL films and you'd get to see the highlights. And being a Giants fan during those years in the early mid-70s, <laughs> some lean years, even the late 60s, and there was always this guy, Dick Butkus, who embodied everything that I loved about football and that I fell in love with football. He was tough. He was anticipatory. He would blow things up. I mean, he was 100 miles an hour. He played fast and hard and angry. And I just remember seeing him thinking, oh, my gosh, this guy is it. He's the guy that made me fall in love with watching football. And I would see him on NFL film highlights um, because we didn't get a whole lot of Bears football. You know, in New yeah. York, you only had three channels and, and and the Giants were on every week. And then, you know, in the, the four o'clock game would be the Jets or or the Raiders or someone on the West Coast. But I just remember seeing him. And it's funny, I wore number 51 starting in 
I think it was in middle school. Wow. And I wore number 51 all through middle school, all through high school and, and all through college. So he was. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's. Uh, it was, what was your what was your uh, college football career like at Central Connecticut State? It was uh, it was up and down. You know, it started out great. We had a we had a couple of lean seasons and uh, and then we had some average seasons. We were never a great team. Um, we always had a great defense. You know, I, I, I played on a very good defense. It was, it was, you know, it was division two football. And, you know, we played as I was leaving, we were in the stage of moving up to one, what was called one double a back then. So, right. you know, at the end we were playing UConn and Villanova because UConn was still one double a in the old Yankee conference, um, university of Maine. But, um, you, you know, for a small school, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go through the accolades, but for a small school, uh, college football, I, I did okay. I did okay. That, that's the old Central Connecticut helmet right there. Wow. The Blue Devils. Wow. You know, I, I often think of you, uh, you know, I've known you for a long time, going back to all your years with, with the Patriots and, you know, and even before that uh, with the Jets. And the one thing that I've, I've really thought about you over the years is that you are a football traditionalist. And you've got a lot of traits of George Young. I covered George Young as the GM of the Giants. Starting the with the airline. Yeah, right, right. But what was always interesting about George Young is that he fought against free agency viciously. He hated free agency. He thought it was going to be a ruination of football. He just simply didn't like the fact that he didn't think it was a sport that you could plug guys in and, mm. you know, and away you go. And, you know, I, I never, you know, that was, those are my early years in the business, but I never thought it would be the ruination of the game just because coaches in all sports are basically made to, uh, to adjust and to adapt and to be adaptable. And, and I, I'm asking you this question after seeing the Reggie White cover, because I went on that trip with Reggie White. Art Modell gave Reggie White his plane, basically. And he went around the country because Art Modell was sure that they had the best deal and, and all that. And it didn't end up working out for the Browns, but it was such a revolutionarily different concept and different idea. But I want to ask you, eight years after that uh, the experience that landed Reggie White in uh, Green Bay. You were with Bill Belichick in New England in 2001. You were coming off a 5-11 and season. Uh, Robert Kraft had just signed uh, Drew Bledsoe to the biggest contract in NFL history. So, and the salary cap was $67 million. You had a $10 million quarterback. So you really had to pinch pennies that offseason. And I wonder, you signed, you and Bill Belichick, Patriots signed 23 free agents yep. that year, including guys like Mike Vrabel and Otis Smith and, and Mike Compton and David Patton, guys who played big roles hmm. on your first Super Bowl team. So let me ask you, when did you, I mean, did you think that free agency in back in the 90s when you were getting into football was awful? Did you hate it? And how did you adapt to it? 
Well, what's funny, I, Peter, that's right around the time you and I met because I was with the Browns then. Yeah. Michael Lombardi introduced us because Michael was the, the head of player personnel and Bill was the head coach in Cleveland. And I was working as a slappy. Well, actually, by that time, I by 94, I had moved up from slappy to pro scout or pro something. Hey, but wait a second. Before you go on with this story, you've got to tell the story of driving Belichick to the airport and what he used to put in your ashtray. Oh, man. Yeah, it was one of those things. So part of the job in entry level was Bill had this saying, the more you can do, the more you can do. No job's too big, no job's too small. So, I mean, there were days where myself or George Kokinas or Schwartz, you know, we'd have to go get a pack of smokes for the administrative assistant if she, or Dominelli, who was our college director, one of the great football characters of all time. And, and mentors, quite honestly. Dom would need a pack of smoke. So he'd have us run and do a million things. I'll never forget the first time, you know, Bill says, hey, listen, I got to go to the airport, take me over. As you know that, it's really a five-minute drive from the right. Berea, but there's those train tracks, right? And you can get double or triple trains, so you never know if it was going to be a five-minute trip or a 45-minute trip. So I dropped Bill off the first time, and uh, I had to grab his stuff. I had one of these four-door kind of cars and we'd thrown his bag. I think it was, it was off season. So he's going somewhere to meet his family to go skiing. And I remember getting out, getting out and getting back in the car. And I look at my ashtray, not, I didn't smoke, but every car had an ashtray back then, of course. And he had put a hundred bucks. It was a Ben Franklin sitting in my thing. And, and he leaned in and, and said, Hey, just go gas as a bill. Gas doesn't cost this much. And he was, you know, he's just like, hey, listen, I've been where you before. Just shut up and take it. No one to take a gift. And he did that often. I mean, I also remember at the end of my first year with Bill, um, this is one of the things I will never forget, and I can't express to people how meaningful it was. So back in the day, coaches used to have their own deals with clothing companies and shoe companies. So Bill had a deal with Starter, or it was either Starter or Apex One, you know, that really ugly stuff we used to wear. But he would get paid and he had a separate corporation that he would get when he did stuff off, he would have the corporation paid. Yeah. What he would do at the end of the year was he would write checks to every single one of his assistant coaches, Mike Lombardi, myself, and a couple other guys. But I'll never forget after that first year, he wrote, I was only, I was making that first year, I think 16 grand in 1982, uh, 1992. And he wrote me a check for 1500 bucks. And it's it's so Bill was always um, you, you just he, there wasn't a whole lot of hey great job thanks right but he knew what was important and what was important was surviving you know so he would do things like that anyway I digress but that that time in Cleveland like I said that's when I think Mike I remember Michael Lombardi introducing us and we that's where we started to cultivate a relationship but I remember you know being an old school guy um, and a historian of the game and loving the game. And being a guy who probably, I think I may have cried when Tom Seaver was traded, you know, it was that time in the mid 70s, yeah. 74, 75, when free agency was starting, players could get traded and it would just blow your mind uh, as a kid who loved the team. You didn't like to see your heroes go. And so I always looked at things like that. But something I learned early in, in my professional life was whatever the rules are, follow the rules. And if everyone has to follow the same rules, just follow the same rules and just try to be better than that. So did I like the idea of and the concept? Not really, but, you know, that's not for me to decide. So right. someone else makes the rules you follow. That, and that's what we did. But, Peter, go back to that, that 2001 season. 
you know, I, I go back to 1994, that first free agency trip, when um, actually it was Jimmy Sexton was Reggie White's agent. And every trip that Reggie White, he made, remember what it was Harry Galbraith. Harry Galbraith was the guard on that trip. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And they were teammates at the University of Tennessee, and then they ended up going to Green Bay together. But, you know, that um, that tour was interesting because, the, the you know, the idea was at that time that everyone was going to recruit people. It was going to be about whether or not you put them at the Ritz-Carlton in your city, whether or not you put them, you know, took them to the best steakhouse in town. It was like this recruiting trip where you fly them in a private plane, put them in a limousine, and we did all of that stuff in Cleveland. And as you know, that wasn't really our image or the way that we right. kind of, that wasn't the culture, I would say. Um, you know, and that wasn't Bill's culture, but we did it because that's what everyone was doing. Fast forward to 2001. So again, go back to the year before, which is 2000, when Bill and I arrived in New England. And we had under contract only 41 players and again back in that time you would have to put together an 80-man roster and you had whatever cap room that you had and you had to fit the the top 51 at one point in time and then once the final cuts it would be your 53 plus your practice squad when we arrived in the winter of 2000 after leaving the jets we had 41 players under contract or the rights to 41 players and we were ten and a half million dollars over the cap and again, remember how small the cap was? So that yeah. was, it was insane. So we had to restructure a couple of contracts, including Drew, who had just become the highest paid. And we had to do the kind of the cap manipulation that I hated, that Bill hated, which was borrowing against the future, where you guarantee, right. you know, you convert base salary to signing bonus, you spread it out just to lower the cap number. We did that on a couple of players. I think we did it on Drew and Ty Law, maybe Lawyer Malloy. And that's how we got into the cap. 5-11 that year. The next year, we have a little bit of cap space. But we had we had known, you know, I had background in pro personnel, so knew the league really well. Bill knew the league well because, again, as a coach, as an assistant coach those three years, as a defense coordinator of the, um, of the, of the New, York, uh, New York Jets those couple of years before, he obviously saw the league. So we were going to be all in for free agency. But we were going to do free agency different than what we had done in Cleveland and what other teams had been. We were going to try to build the team with Bill Belichick kind of guys, guys that cared about football, loved football, were tough, were smart, and were given opportunities. And we built a lot of contracts. As you say, Peter, we signed 23 players that were either unrestricted free agents or street free agents for a total signing bonus amount of $2.5 million. You mentioned some of those players. You know, Rabel, Brian Cox, Anthony Pleasant, um, Roman Pfeiffer, Matt Stevens, Antoine Smith, the running back who rushed for over a thousand yards. My favorite signing, I think, that year, one of my favorites was Mike Compton, an offensive lineman who in 2001, every time that Brady was under center, Damian Woody was the, was the center. When we had to go to shotgun, Compton and Woody switched and Comp because Woody was having trouble with his shotgun snap. So Compton would be the center. Um I mean, the guys we had, Charles Johnson, we, I think I said Brian Cox, but we collected this group of players that were all about business. Yeah. Didn't bring them in private planes. We didn't bring them in limos. A guy like Mike Rabel, who had been a part, mostly special teams player and a part-time defensive player, we thought that he could start and flourish 
in Bill's defense because he was so smart, he was so disciplined, and he could play the two-gap defense that Bill wanted. So what we did with Rabel is we signed him to a two-year deal. I think we only gave him, I want to say it was like 200 grand to sign, but we built in incentives. And this is what we did that year, which is you know I, something I think a lot of teams should be doing this year. When you don't have cap space, you create contracts that have non-likely-to-be-earned incentives in them, Peter. And so let's say Vrabel had 31% play time on defense the year before. Well, you pay him a respectable salary for what a backup player is. But if you become the starter and you play 40%, you get another 150. You play 50%. You do it incrementally. You keep building in a sense where it doesn't hit your cap in that year. But as that player performs and produces, they get paid. Because the thing that you don't want to do, Peter, is if you get a player at a fair contract because they've been a backup, when they become a really good player – the last thing you want them to do is feel like they were taken advantage of and disrespected. Yeah. And we did that with all these players. So that's how we built this team, Peter. Larry Izzo was another guy that we signed. And the players bought into the philosophy, and they were betting on themselves. I give the players a lot of respect because they were good players that trusted themselves. They also trusted that the New England Patriot model was really a meritocracy, and the best players were going to play. And if you had a role, you were going to play. And it wasn't about politics. It wasn't, it didn't matter. Again, no disrespect, but, you know, Drew Bledsoe was the highest paid player in the league and quarterback. By the time he got healthy and came back, Brady was performing better. We thought he was the guy. Yeah. And it was symbolic of the whole team, though, that it was a meritocracy, Peter. When you look at the starting lineup in that Super Bowl against the Rams that year, And I say this with respect, true respect. It's one of the worst starting lineups that ever won an NFL championship. And I don't mean that. I don't mean that they're not good players. But what I'm saying is when you look at that lineup, you say, how in the world did this team ever win a Super Bowl? Because remember, at the end of that game, the Rams-Patriots Super Bowl, John Madden was basically telling Tom Brady on national TV, just sit on it and play for overtime. And Brady goes, no, no, I'm going to throw these dump off passes and some, and, and, you know, and move the ball down the field. And obviously you got in position to kick the, for Vinatieri to kick uh, the game winning field goal. But you look back at that team and one day I think you'll, you'll be, you'll be having a cold one somewhere with Bill Belichick and say, Man, that might have been the best one because of what the offseason was like that year. Well, to this day, Peter, it is my best one. I think I've told you this before. My two favorite championships of all time were the 2001 Super Bowl championship and the 1981 Washington Mill Wizards championship. I mean, because they were as silly as it sounds, they were built the same way. And here's what I I bristle at. At, at, at what you're saying, because I think it, that may have been the best team in my time in the NFL, the best team right. that I was ever a part of. Because everyone had a role, everyone had a part, everyone, they were champions. They were championship mentality, they were championship makeup, and they were world champions. And and, and I, the reason I bristle, Peter, is I think one of the things I've never been comfortable with and I'm even less comfortable with today is 
that when things like that are said, and I know you, you preface it by saying you don't mean to be disrespectful, and I know you're not. The problem is there were some really, really good football players on that team. And those teams, the, the next, you know, those three championship teams that won four years, there were some really good football players that have never gotten their due. And they've mm -hmm. never, they don't receive enough respect because of the Patriot model, because of the team, because Tom was so dominant, because Bill is the greatest coach in NFL history, that they actually discount how good Willie McGinnis was. They right. discount how good Rodney Harrison was. And I'll say this. I am a true believer that Rodney Harrison should be in the, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. There is no doubt in my mind. He, he was the first 40-40. He was the – and not only was he a dominant player, he embodies everything that we talk about Hall of Fame players and champions being and what this game should be and represent. Rodney embodies everything. Right. Richard Seymour. I mean, Richard Seymour was not a good player. He was a great player. So yeah. I, and you, I, I, get, I get a little – I know you weren't being offensive, and I know other people aren't yeah. trying to be, but I just don't like the fact that there were so many good players. You know, Corey Dillon was a – he was a very, very good player. Yeah. Rodney Harrison was. Willie McGinnis was. Vrabel was. Larry mm -hmm. Ingle was a dominant special teams player during that entire decade. Anyway, I know I get worked up, but the, I, I just feel bad for the guys because they should get more respect for how good they were. Yeah, yeah that's very, very fair. We've got only like five minutes, but I want to just ask you – I know in the last few days, everybody has been opining about, you know, the Patriots spending so much money early in free agency. I wouldn't be surprised if on, on opening day, they've got eight starters that they basically bought, you know, in this free agency period. It could very well be. But I, I wanted to ask you something else about this team and this time, and that is, how do you think that, you know, Bill Belichick sort of sees, uh, you know, sort of the present and the future? Do you think Bill, I mean, it, it strikes me whenever I look at him, he still looks young. He's whatever he is, 69 years old. And he still looks young. And I, I wonder, A, how much longer is he going to do it? And B, is there anything possible that he could do in his life that to him would be as fun? Hmm. I, you know, I have no idea how long he's going to. One of the funny things about Bill is just when you, this is in, in a certain way, he's similar to Parcells, two different personalities, two different people. But just when you think you have either one of them figured out. Figured out. You know, it's like I said, we were joking before we came on air about my favorite Rowdy Roddy Piper line, right? Just yeah. when you think you know the answer, I change the question. <laughs> what Bill does. And he doesn't do it. It's just he's um, – I don't know how long he's going to do it. And, again, I'm not sure if he does. Maybe he does, but he's going to do – bottom line is Bill's going to do what Bill, Bill wants to do and what's best for him, you know, his kids. And um, – so I, I've watched this, and I'm, I'm looking at what he's doing. He always works on the present and thinks about the future, right? He just doesn't obsess about the future. 
And that's a very important distinction, I think. You need to consider it. You need to think about it. You need to have a plan. But if you don't take care of now, there won't be a, a later. Chris so, Sims had a great story when he told me, you know, he spent a year as, uh, I guess, offensive quality control. It would have been a few years ago after his playing career finished. And he said one time he was they, there was a, a staff meeting, uh, you know, in May and he noticed something about Belichick. And that is that Bill Belichick is precisely the same person with the same attitude, the same approach to his day on May 10th as he is on October 10th, a game, a game day. And he said he just never, ever changed. Hmm. And obviously, sometimes you can get upset, you can get mad or whatever. But, but in general, he said, the reason why I think Bill will coach forever is because the game absolutely doesn't stress him out. And, and Scott, so, you know, long after, not long, but three, four years after you left to go to Kansas City to be the general manager, my every time I think about Belichick's approach, the one thing I think of is the end game in the Seattle Super Bowl, where he's just standing there and everybody's saying, Bill, take a timeout, take a timeout. And he just, you could tell, he was just saying to himself, we'll let Seattle deal with the pressure of what they should be doing right now. If they want to call a timeout, let them, but we're not calling one. And so you could sense that they were all cool about it. And Seattle was sort of, I'm not saying it was a panic button, but Seattle was getting a little nervous as that clock just tick, tick, tick. But I, that's, that's kind of how I, how, I, how I think of his approach. And quite honestly, it's been your approach as well, uh, you know, over the years when you, you know, when you left there and went to Kansas City. Uh, you know, I just always thought that there was never times where you were really utterly tense about things. You just, you know, you did the best job you could. And there's no sense using the negative energy that can be kind of a destructive thing a lot of times in football. Yeah. And Peter, I, there's so many thoughts going through my head right now. But this is important because I think you see Bill that way. Um because he's prepared. Bill prepares um, as thoroughly, efficiently, and um, detailed as any person I've ever been around, regardless of their, their, their workplace or whatever they do. And I remember, you know, I go back, I, coaches taught me that when I was a kid and when I was a player. And I always remember the time I felt most comfortable, most at peace, was when I was prepared to play yeah somehow when i got done playing because i was in this new world you get into these new places you don't feel as confident because you don't this is why i always make the distinction between work ethic and work habits right there's a lot of people with a really strong work ethic but if you don't have good work habits you could be wasting time and chasing emotions and as parcells used to say chasing windmills that don't matter um once you develop good work habits on how you do things, a system, a process, those words that get overused, but people don't necessarily know what they mean. I think one of the most important things I learned by watching Bill when I got into the other, the, the next part phase of football that I got into 
was watching how prepared he was. And there is no situation in football. You mentioned that Seattle game. He had thought about that moment, not once, not twice, a million times. He's always prepared. And someone asked me the other day what was one of the most important things. There's a long list of things that I learned from Bill and Bill. But Bill Belichick's um, lessons on how to prepare will always stick with me because that's why I believe he was able to make good decisions because he wasn't being overly emotional because he yeah. was breathing and doing things. And um, to me, that is the key to preparation. And if you're prepared, you have a degree of confidence, not arrogance. You have confidence that you're going to make a good decision. And oh, by the way, it might work and it might not work. And if it doesn't work, sometimes it won't be because you weren't prepared. But as long as you, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it's, um, it was one of the great things I've learned um, over the years and the times I felt most comfortable was by preparing. Scott Pioli, really fun. You know, we could, <clears throat> we could really talk for about four hours. Um, I kind of, I, I, I enjoy the conversations and I appreciate it. I had 48 things on my list to talk to you about. Uh, we didn't get to any of the final 46, but we'll pick it up again one day. Thanks. So I much. hope so. Hope sometime soon, Peter. Thank you. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. And now my conversation with the athletics media maven, Richard Deitch. Back on the podcast, so happy to be joined by Richard Deitch, uh, who is, to me, the, the foremost authority on TV, radio, and now streaming sports uh, as it pertains to the National Football League. Works for The Athletic, formerly my peer at uh, Sports Illustrated. Richard, thanks so much. Peter, uh, it's sad that you have gotten this desperate where you are booking me for your podcast, but it is great, uh, great to be with you. Great to catch up. Well, uh, you always, you know me. I like to sort of sniff around when news happens and, uh, and get people on who I know can make me smarter and make uh, my listeners smarter. And I know you'd be able to do that about this $113 billion uh, media rights deal. You know, I, 
I guess I would start off and just simply ask you, I, I took away that I think the biggest thing here uh, with this new contract that starts in 2023, some elements, however, could start as early as 2021. But uh, in, in 2023, if you want to see every game in the NFL, you're going to have to uh, pony up $119 a year for an Amazon Prime subscription uh, so that you can watch 15 Thursday night games um, it, it, the same way, uh, you know, that you watch all the other games that you've gotten used to watching. That was my big takeaway. What was yours? There's a number of them. And by the way, you'll not only pony up for Amazon, but if you want to watch games during the duration of this deal, you better have ESPN plus as well as Paramount right. plus too. If you want, um, if you want exclusivity. And isn't there also one on Peacock? Correct. Yeah. So, but so there's a number of takeaways that I had first and foremost is the NFL's increase during a pandemic is, it's just, it's extraordinary. Um, it's not that I didn't expect them to get a significant increase, Peter, but just given the given the economic conditions that exist, it really hits home how powerful this product is as an entertainment and content play. And honestly, nothing, arguably nothing else is like it in the United States. Uh, certainly nothing else in sports, but it's just such a powerful content play that for them to get the kind of increases they got was pretty extraordinary. I think in terms of sort of where the NFL and the media companies are concerned is what the NFL tried to do here is they're trying to navigate the present and the future. So the present is that the reach of the reach of the games is still largest when they're on traditional outlets like NBC and CBS and Fox and to an extent ESPN, even though you have to have a cable uh, coverage. So in that sense, you have to, you know, you want to make sure that people still have access to these games in the places that they have traditionally got them. So in many ways, not much changes from the way you watched the NFL five, seven years ago. But the NFL isn't dumb, nor are these, uh, nor are these media partners, and that they know their streaming service is both the present and certainly the future. So they have to start getting NFL content on these streaming services. And even more importantly, they have to educate the audience right. in terms of that, you know, this you, you're, I mean, let's face it, it's an economic play. Like we need to educate people that ultimately you're going to have to pay for these services. If you want this product, the NFL realizing that gets into what you said, they make an exclusive deal with Amazon. They put games on Peacock. They put games on Paramount plus they put games on ESPN plus they allow in the ESPN deal, uh, multiple highlights and shoulder programming that go on their streaming service. Um, so that's the biggest takeaway is that they try to f navigate the line between um, the old world, which is still the present world, and what may be the future. The other big takeaway, Peter, for me is this is far and away ESPN's best ever deal when it comes to the NFL. They're in the Super Bowl rotation, which is something Disney's wanted. It feels like forever. They got flex scheduling on Monday Night Football after week 12, which is incredible. Again, protection from some of these uh, late season games that have not been right. good. And they get more inventory. And the likelihood is now that I think the NFL is going to treat Monday Night Football with a little more, um, 
kind of why sort of like you know a little more gravitas the way they certainly do Sunday night football. So yeah, ESPN certainly listen. They paid the most, but their increase was not as great as the other networks. They get in the Super Bowl, and I feel like they finally think that they're an equal with the other places. So that's another big takeaway for me is just that this is far and away I think ESPN's uh, best NFL deal they've had probably since they got the league. You had a conversation with uh, one of the ESPN vice presidents uh, named Burke Magnus in a story that you wrote after the new rights deal went down. And this is something, Burke Magnus said something that everyone who talks about these rights deals never, ever, ever, ever mentions. And it drives me nuts. And that is that ESPN pays a lot more money than everybody else. We all know that. But ESPN pays a lot more money and maybe doesn't get the Monday night game the equal of the Sunday night game. And that's clear that they have not traditionally gotten that. But ESPN gets programming 12 months a year all through the day because they get to air highlights. As as Burke Magnus told you, the ancillary rights footage highlights across linear and digital cross-platform is essentially oxygen for ESPN on a 365-day basis. Okay, and so I don't want to make a big deal of that, but sometimes when people say, oh my God, ESPN pays so much more, they're getting ripped off. I mean, wake up, (laughs) you know. How would you be able to have NFL Live without highlights? How would you be able to have SportsCenter without highlights? How would you, all these programs that they have. And so that is one thing that I, I was glad to see you, uh, you took on and sort of clarified. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a pretty good argument to make that if, that if ESPN doesn't have that part of the deal, and I think Jimmy Pitaro, Burke Magnus, their top executives would say that the game inventory and the Highland inventory are probably equal in their mind. Right. Just, just think of basically an ESPN without the ability to show NFL highlights. Think of how many programs would ultimately be reduced on that network. Now, would the network still exist? Of course. I mean, they have college programming and they had the NBA, but they would be so reliant, Peter, on creating um, essentially kind of debate or conversation television without much imagery on all this stuff, it would be very, very hard to do, given that they're a 24 seven outlet with, you know, obviously now streaming capacities. So ES, part of ESPN's deal, Peter, has always been to get this kind of um, video and highlight access. And as long as they're still in the business of NFL Live and a post-game show on Sunday night and SportsCenter, they need this stuff. So you're right, that's part of the, that's part of the 2.7, billion that they paid what would have been interesting as a thought experiment and we're not going to see it is had espn opted let's say not to be in the business with the nfl like how would they have gone about covering the nfl without uh any of these ancillary highlights or game inventory that would have been some kind of challenge there's no way they could have you can't have an everyday NFL live show you just can't do it Look, I'm on with Mike Florio every Friday for two hours on his PFT show from seven to nine in the morning. There's no highlights. I mean, and look, 
I can talk with the best of them and Florio can out talk me, but still it's, it's a little bit, uh, it comes, becomes repetitive, right? You're eventually, you miss the highlights, yeah, obviously exactly. you miss the highlights, but, but anyway, you know, the other thing that I thought, I thought, okay, so last week after this deal happened, I talked to Robert Kraft, who's the head of the now called the media committee used to be called the broadcast committee. Uh, and, uh, the NFL's, uh, basically media czar, Brian Rollup. And what really struck me is these guys, and I'm, I'm exaggerating, but they have a man crush on Jeff Bezos. I mean, <laughs> they just do. And, you know, listen can, to this quote. He can, he can pay for dinner. I understand. Listen to this quote from, from, uh, from Rolap. He was so excited. He says, today you're able to watch an original film that won an Oscar on the same site that you buy your toothpaste. And, uh, and then he went on to say, and basically in 2023, they're going to be in business with, with that, with that, with that company. And in essence, oh, you know, over the next, uh, you know, over the 11 years of this deal, this incredible, uh, you know, explosive, American businessman who now either it's either him or Elon Musk is the richest person in the United States. They've gone way past Bill Gates now. But but you when you look at it, they are in business and this guy has invested $13 billion in the NFL. And so by 2023, movies, toothpaste, books, Whole Foods, the NFL. I mean, which the NFL wants so badly to be in every aspect of your life, you know, it, for you to, for the NFL to occur to you 365 days a year. That's one of the things that I think this is all about. Yeah. And, you know, it, you really cannot um, undersell how, how positive it is for the NFL to be in business with Amazon, because these are numbers, Peter, um, while they are significant numbers for the NBCs and the NBC Universals and the Viacom, CBSs, Fox, et cetera, they are not as significant for a place like Amazon. Yeah. So if you can get them in your orbit, the, the sky is theoretically the limit. If we ever do get to a place where streaming service technology is just, um, it's, 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 you know, it's fail safe and there's a hundred million people with an Amazon Prime account, you know, again, I'm not saying this will happen even in 2043, but if we get to that place where a place like Amazon really decides to go for it and wants, you know, every Sunday football game, well, you can just imagine what kind of price tag the NFL could ultimately charge a business like that. And they're the one group, you know, out of these sort of uh, digital players, you know, the Googles and the, um, you know, that the, in sort of Facebooks, that, that world, they're the one place so far that seems to maybe want to go a little more all in on sports. And certainly this NFL deal shows that. So it is a massively important relationship for the NFL. And as I've talked to, you know, both uh, Amazon's competitors and industry experts, Peter, like most of them have said they played, a, they paid a premium. Like they paid maybe $500 million more than the Thursday night football rights would have gone in terms of uh, traditional partners. So the NFL made out huge when it came to that. So I understand league officials wanting to wine and dine Jeff Bezos because 
Very few companies in the world right now have that kind of money. Hey, if you look at it this way, Fox paid an average of six hundred uh, million a year for the rights to Thursday night games. Nobody wanted the the package. I'm mean, when I say nobody wanted it, nobody wanted at that it price at the scale of an yeah. increase that exactly. the NFL wanted. So what did the NFL do? The NFL traded uh, viewers for money and they traded viewers for the future because this very much reminds me and I was an infant in in you know in swaddling clothes covering the league when they went to ESPN in 1987 but I vaguely remember the hue and cry about what do you mean what I don't even I don't have cable I just have my rabbit ears I I don't I, so I'm not going to watch these games that you're putting on ESPN well, you know, everybody ended up figuring out a way to do it. And I think they'll, they'll probably do the same thing here. I want to ask you one other thing about, about just what will be the change in TV, in, in NFL watching come 2023. You hear the hue and cry from people who say, I'm not going to pay 13 bucks a month for Amazon Prime just to watch four football games every month or 119 bucks, whatever it is by then. But tell me how you think, uh, how you think the audience will respond? Will the audience go to streaming or do you think a large part of the audience will say, Hey, forget it NFL. I'm not doing this. I think at this point, I, I honestly don't see a lot of people, uh, migrating to Amazon Prime just because they have this Thursday schedule. You know, the reality is, and this is more guesswork by me than not, that these will not, these will be the worst set of games in terms right. of each package. And so I'm not sure what the draw will be. If you're in a city, Peter, where your team is playing, you're going to get those games on over the air television. The NFL has right. a provision for that. So I, I, I'm not convinced that there'll be, you know, waves and waves of people. Uh, heading to Amazon, but I I'm sure some will, you know, I, there, there are some diehards and gamblers. And so Amazon will get a little bit of a jump from that. I would be more interested in seeing um, during the duration of the deal. And I don't expect this to happen, honestly, for uh, a number of years, just to see like how the games on the, um, on the streaming services of the big places, how, how the ESPN plus the Peacock game and the Paramount Plus game, how that does in terms of critical reaction, in terms of uh, number of average minute viewers, that's where I think they're going to find um, a lot out about their audience. And if those games maybe over-index where they expected, well, then I think streaming gets more and more serious as we head towards the uh, the next rights deal. But I'm a little counterintuitive here. I'm I'm not so convinced that like in the next like two to four years, all of a sudden people are going to sort of demand to have NFL games on, you know, streaming services. I think, you know, that you're still working with such a large base of people who have been conditioned for years and years and years to go to Fox or CBS right. Sunday at 425. And that's where they expect it. So as yeah, no doubt cord cutting will exist unless people will have, cable packages but i i i i just i don't see the everything blowing up in the near term the real question to me is like 
you know, it's impossible to even predict what media will be a year from now, let alone five years from now. But I would say in the latter half of this rights deal is when things will get interesting in terms of where streaming is. But I think for the first three to five years of the deal, I don't think our experience is going to be so different than what it's been over the last couple of years. I'm not sure. I think I probably would disagree with you and I'll tell you why, because I don't know how many people right now, because Amazon doesn't publicize it. I think an awful lot of people in, you know, who, who, let, let me, let me phrase it this way. I think a lot of NFL households, to, you know, full of people who watch the NFL, or at least one or two people in those households who watch the NFL, I think they have Amazon Prime. I think and, they have Netflix. Whether they have Amazon Prime, I don't uh, know. That's... I think I think I think a lot of people have Amazon Prime. I do. I might be wrong. I don't. I don't. No, no. Know. I mean, listen. It, the, whatever the numbers are, you know, 60, 70, 80 million, they have it. The, the The question I would have is, is that enough of an incentive for another 20, 25 million people to get it? Because you still that's have, the, and that's the question. Yeah, you still have at least in theory. Maybe it's not even in theory. You still have a hundred million plus Americans have access to Fox, CBS, and NBC. Those yeah. are still real big numbers. I'm not saying every there's not 100 million people obviously watching it every night, but the households have access to it. So, you know, the, the interesting thing is like those numbers obviously are going to keep going down. But where where and when will they cross? You know what I mean? Where and when does streaming sort of overtake traditional means of of NFL viewing? And I'm just saying I don't expect that three to five years from now. If you ask me seven years from now, maybe I don't know. I get maybe 150 to 200 pieces of email a week uh, at, you know, connected with my column with Football Morning in America. And it has now been, uh, you know, I don't know, 40 hours or whatever since I posted my column Sunday night. And I would say half the mail I've gotten has, has asked me the same question. And I am going to ask you this question. What happens to Sunday ticket? And does Sunday Ticket perhaps go streaming? I would predict it will. Um, to again, ha you know, having talked to a number of the executives who would be negotiating with the NFL, so Marie Donahue of uh, Amazon and Pete Bavacqua, your I think probably technically your boss on NBC, um, you know, Sean McManus at CBS. Uh, did, did not talk to a executive at Fox and obviously Pitaro and Magnus at ESPN. None of them obviously are going to come out and say, we want this. We're going to outbid everybody, but they all sort of, with the exception of NBC seem to indicate like, we'll take a realistic look at this and we're interested in talking to the NFL. And certainly I, it came off to me that Amazon and ESPN would absolutely take a, a real look at it for ESPN, Peter, that feels like a game changer. If Sunday tickets yeah. on ESPN plus, like I, I, that feels like rocket fuel for that streaming service. I know Disney plus is, you know, is, has amazing numbers and ESPN plus has great growth um, since it started, but man, that feels like a game changer. And then we get back to Amazon. And again, the numbers that Sunday ticket has cost in the past are nothing for Amazon. It is mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's a rounding era, but it's not much more. 
So if I had to handicap it, I think one of those two places will get it. I don't think there's any chance in the world like DirecTV is going to happen again. And then I think, Peter, that's a mega massive change because then to me, streaming becomes like the place where you can get every NFL game. And I think that would have really big implications as we head as we head down the road. Uh, the only thing I don't know, because obviously I, I don't have access to Disney and ESPN's books, is you know where how would they feel about after paying you know two point seven million dollars for the traditional NFL rights that they have, you know, throwing another two billion dollars for Sunday Ticket? Like that's what know? I think it's going to be. Yeah, like do they have the kind of resources where like they are willing to invest nearly five billion dollars in football? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I think Amazon wouldn't blink if that's if that's what they want. Um, I, and think I, they'd bl- I think they'd blink, but I I agree with you. I think it's going to be one of these two entities. Yeah, and I, I'll be that, and that to me would be game changing for Amazon. I, I do yeah. feel like you you know depending on what the price point would be, um, I mean that could be extraordinarily uh, successful. And I think for those who've had direct, I mean. I get, you know, I probably don't get as many emails as you do, but I'll tell you this, whenever I get asked questions in mailbags and stuff about Sunday taking a direct TV, they're always negative. Nobody seems to like that experience. Yeah. So I think the people who have had it, I think would be willing to pay whatever the price point is to have something different. They just, they don't seem to be satisfied customers. The only reason they seem to get it is because they love the NFL and they just consider it a product they have to have, but they don't seem to be satisfied customers at least to me the one the one other thing that that i'm very interested to see if this gets developed um i think there's a lot of fans who say you're a browns fan and you live in pocatello idaho (laughs) and so you don't get the browns games and all you want are the browns games yeah that to me is one other way one other price point that an ESPN plus or an Amazon could also make money. So in other words, if you don't want 200 and it's going to be 272 games or whatever it is in the regular season now with a 17th game, if you don't want that many games and you just want 17 of your one team, that's another way to make money through this process, which I think they should. But anyway, that's just one other. Yeah, thing. no, I, I that's one to uh, that's one to watch. What I haven't really sort of figured out, and I have to sort of, I guess, do a little sort of thinking on this as to uh, what the impact will be is when we come out of this pandemic, when we're in a post-pandemic world and there's more travel, but probably less people from working from offices, like how would that impact this purchase? I don't know, but but I do know that societal behavior changes do have impact um, when it comes to these things. So we'll have to, we'll have to figure out, you know, there was the conventional wisdom that the NFL would follow suit with all these other jewel events and viewership would be down. It was down, but I felt like being down 9%, they held their own. Then at the same time, Peter, the Super Bowl was, was an absolute, you know, viewership disaster. So it's hard to, it's hard to know what all this stuff will mean as we head forward. Hey, last thing, uh, how do you think Drew Brees will do on, at NBC? You know, I talked to, it's, it was interesting. I, I talked to people who are, um, who would be considered, you know, competitors of Sunday night football or cons- competitors of, of, um, of Notre Dame. And everybody I talked to thought that Drew had a pretty good chance to be successful because of his, um, 
you know, one, he's very well known. So his Q rating is high. Uh, he's engaging, he's driven, and he has a ton of experience, obviously, just in terms of dealing with uh, the media. The people who um, suggested that it might not be a slam dunk just wondered how Drew would be when it came to having to be critical of other players. So that was sort of part one. And then part two, and this is more really inside baseball when it comes to the media was he has a real interesting start here, Peter, in that he's going to do game stuff for Notre Dame. And then he's going to do studio stuff for football night in America. Those are two very different skill sets. Yeah. And you, you know, if you're NBC, you want to make sure that one, that doesn't become overwhelming. And two, the way he presents himself in a, uh, as a game analyst will be very different than what the expectations will be for him in the studio. So if he has good producers and good people working behind him, um, it could really turn out great because he could develop like dual school, uh, dual um, skill sets at the same time and be a really good analyst. I mean, you've been around him more. Our, our mutual colleague, Tim Layden has been around him more. So you probably have a, a pretty good feel. I would say this as a futures play, as a futures investment by NBC, I think it's a very smart one. I would agree. I would, and some people at NBC asked me, how do you think he'll do? Or how do you think before they made this deal, how do you think he would do? And I said, he'll do well. And, you know, the difference between doing well and being great is to me, what Chris Collinsworth and Tony Romo do well. They can be a guy who you literally could see. I'd, people saying, I'd like to sit next to this guy at a that, bar exactly. and watch the game. That's, that's the whole ball game. The, got it the, right. the, the thing that you don't know is somebody with the Saints said, oh, my God, he's going to be fantastic. The way he works and, you know, and all that and how he studies the game, I said, hey, I said, everybody studies the game. Everybody works. Everybody watches the tape. This is not about that. This is about people wanting to hear what you say and being entertained in a uh, 27 to three game late in the third quarter. And you want to hang around and watch the game because you really enjoy listening to Drew Brees. Yep. And One, yeah. those are the things that I wonder about. And, and I, I think he can do it. No question, but I just don't know that he will do it, you know? One of the, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it here because I'm not going to have the exact uh, phrasing right, but Scott Van Pelt one time, I don't know if he was on a podcast with me or we were just talking. And one of the things he sort of said about the secret to try to being good on TV was, you know, once you, um, once you don't let television conquer you, you ultimately conquer television. And what he basically meant was once you are not, um, a prisoner of how people of how you expect people to see you or you become or you're a prisoner of what you think people want from you then you can be yourself and when you are yourself ultimately people like you so what i would say to drew and this is not very easy is not to not not to not to go in there to be what you think people want from you as a broadcaster or for you to you know sort of be vanilla or toe the line, like right. just be you, be honest, be your personality. And ultimately people will like that because generally speaking, I think people want to like Drew Brees. And so if he does that, 
I think he'll be successful. But you're right, Peter. I mean, I have no doubt Drew Brees will study and he'll know everything about uh, an offense or a defense. But most of the people, and you know, Peter, you've been around long enough. Most of the people who are part of A crews or B crews, they all study. They all work hard. That's not the differentiator. Yeah, I agree with you. Hey, Richard, thanks a million for doing this. Really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with me. Thanks for the invite, Peter. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. So look at how busy we are. And it's March 24th as you listen to this. Five weeks uh, before the draft. And man, it's just been crazy. So glad you could join me this week on the podcast. And um, I want to just remind you, if you can, if you haven't already read it, there's a lot of stuff in my column this week. Much of uh, the column was about the early days of free agency and about the TV deal and about what uh, the NFL, what I think the NFL is going to do at its annual meeting next week, which is a virtual meeting, uh, which is going to be, they're going to give the replay official more power upstairs uh, to influence calls on the field. And in fact, in some cases, if he feels a call has been missed, uh, call down and, and basically get them to either fix or drop a flag, essentially. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and also uh, interviewed Robert Kraft of the Patriot, the owner of the Patriots, about the new TV deal. He's the head of the media committee among uh, in the NFL. And uh, the craziness, you know, saying that with all the free agents that the Patriots have had, you know, he told me that, hey, we used to uh, we used to laugh at all the teams that overspent in free agency, and now they're one of those teams. But anyway, a lot of stuff to chew on in the column this week. Hope you have a chance to go back and look at it. You can find Football Morning in America at profootballtalk.com and at NBCSports.com. So that's it for this week. Happy you could join me on the podcast. We'll be back next week. I just hope it's slightly, slightly less eventful. But in the NFL these days, you never, never know. Thanks a lot and have a great week. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.